All right, at the end of the session last time, we bumped off the close communionist from the bridge. We were emphasizing the areas of agreement in the different dispensationalist islands. And today we're going to talk about the disagreements, the disagreements. The three primary positions in the locus of the church debate are, if you have your outline with you, traditional or original dispensationalist, ultra, Latin prefix, dispensationalists, also called mid-acts. They call themselves consistent dispensationalists. Very kind to themselves in giving themselves that name. One of my favorite quotes, and I like to collect quotes that I use on times that I'm not too consistent to justify it. Consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds. <laughs> Write that down. That's good. You'll be able to use that in the future. <laughs> and I'm not so interested in being consistent as I am biblical. Sometimes the Bible doesn't seem consistent. I just chalk that up to my own ignorance, and when I get there, I'll ask somebody. And then the third position, the hypers. Hyper, Greek prefix. Acts 28ers. And the formation of the trio is kind of an historical display of the Hegelian dialectic. The original position is the thesis from which we get an antithesis. That is tested, and out of that comes a synthesis. And ideally, then, the synthesis becomes the new thesis, out of which comes a new antithesis and a new synthesis. And the beat goes on and on and on and on. The problem is truth becomes a moving target when you subscribe to that. Truth is never arrived at absolutely. I'm reminded of the professor who greeted a freshman class and said, all the way through your curriculum here at the State University, you keep in mind, no matter what class, nothing is absolute. Nothing is absolute. Repeat after me, nothing is absolute. And then someone in the front row said, professor, are you sure about that? He said, absolutely. <laughs> The problem is, for Dr. Hegel, if the original thesis was correct and you start monkeying with it, you've moved off the truth. The mid-axers are the synthesis. J.C. O'Hare, for a flesh and blood example of moving around, he stated this. In Acts 2, we arrive at the correct position. But he stated that late, very late. He's a flesh and blood example of moving around. He started out in Acts 2, bolted the ranks in the 1920s, landed all the way on the Acts 28 block. He then was peppered with questions by some of the more astute and literalistic brethren. And not being highly educated, which he wasn't, 
he didn't have answers. And so he then abandoned what was called Bullingerism and became a leading propagandist in and for the ultra position. Before we plunge further, let's settle on terms. If you are intrigued enough to pursue some study after the conference is over, you will find an inconsistency of name application. Norman Geisler uses the terms ultra and hyper interchangeably, as do most of the pundits in the field. He sometimes opts for less extreme, the mid-axers, and extreme, the X-28ers. Sheldon Smith, the sword of the Lord, labels the two mid-axe ultra and X-28 hyper. Now we'll go with Smith just for the reason that it makes things simpler. And I hope uh, I'm not abrogating here Einstein's rule and have made it too simple. But at least you will know what we're referring to if we consistently use it for those two. <clears throat> and the next problem to be addressed is the philosophical conundrum of beginning and ending. Now this whole debate, when did the church start? What will happen to it along the way? When will it end? can be explained by a core question, if you can answer the question. Charles Ryrie maintains the core question, which will determine the end result is, when did God form the church, not when was it understood? When did God form the church, not when was it understood? The hypers in particular posit, if you can't see it and it doesn't appear, it's not there. Ruckman, in an exchange with a hyper, showed him a quarter. He said, you see this quarter? And he dropped it in his pocket. Now he said, for the sake of argument, I didn't show you the quarter. You have never seen it. Agreed for the sake of the argument. The fellow said, okay, agreed. Ruckman then asked, is the quarter in my pocket? The hyper dispensationalist paused for a minute and said, well, based on what we said before and agreed to, no, it isn't in your pocket. It isn't real until I see it. And when I can't see it any longer, it's gone, it's disappeared, it's not there. This is kind of a theological twist on the old, if the tree fell in the forest and there was nothing there to record it, did it make a sound? Now, if you define things a certain way, that it is only sound when something receives it, well, then the guy is right. But in reality, that won't fly. I believe, and I think most of you will conclude, it made a sound, whether it was recorded or not. Is the quarter in my pocket? No, it's gone. And Ruckman said, but it might exist, and its existence is not determined by your knowledge of its whereabouts. The man said, yes, it is. If I can't see it, it's not there. Ruckman ended his recounting by saying, that's what you'll be dealing with, with these birds. And if one of them shows up at your church, you've got a problem because they live to dry clean Baptists. They reason in a circle, they refuse to consider context and they run all over the Bible in a discussion. You cannot pin these guys down. 
They may not be quite crazy enough to lock up. But if they were in, they'd never get out. <laughs> now, as applied to the church, the hypers, to an extent, most ultras, maintain when a thing is not specifically mentioned, it is not there. And when it is no longer mentioned, it is gone. And this extends to the church and even church practices, ordinances, minutia, baptism, the Lord's Supper. The book quits talking about them, they're gone. They're not there. Even prayer for forgiveness. Some of these extreme fellows say you're not even to pray for forgiveness when you sin because that is, makes you feel guilty. And the Lord doesn't want you to feel guilty. All right, Acts 2 dispensationalism. Look at your outline. Lecture 3, Roman numeral 1a. The position of traditional dispensationalists is that the New Testament church, local and invisible, began in Acts chapter 2. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven like a rushing wind, cloven tongues as a fire, and then they spoke in other tongues. Now, only Jews from Jerusalem and Jewish proselytes from the empire are there. They make up the early church. Peter is clearly addressing Jews. Notice Joel is referenced in those days. Verse 11 is a reference to a time back beyond the church age. Ye men of Israel, verse 23. At verse 41, 3,000 or so were added to what my grandfather used to call the First Baptist Church of Jerusalem. And according to many, the church was off and running. God, the Lord, added to the church, and he added to the church daily such as should be saved. The Acts tours say, there it is, there it is, it started. The altars and hypers say, not so fast. This is a Jewish proposition. So this is not the real deal, Holyfield. This is a fake they use the same word, but they should not be using it in the same sense that it is later used in the Bible. It's Jewish. This is a Jewish assembly, and they borrowed this from the Greeks. Listen, I know all about the operation of the polis. I taught it for, seemed like a couple of centuries, a couple of decades anyway. But look, logically, how does one add to an assembly that is already assembled? If that's what it's meant. You can't. Unless you get drafted some fresh bodies, you can't add to it if it's already assembled. Now clearly, there was a process beyond just counting those that were assembled. Something else was happening. Out of the original assembly, something was created. Of course, we believe that's the local church and the universal church. We believe it's the church in general. Something dramatic has happened. 3,000 added to something. So the ecclesia here is not just a casual gathering. And it's a stretch to say they were added to the temple or for the travelers to some synagogue afar where they could move their letter. 
That's not what's being talked about here. It would seem by default that a new institution has been birthed, empowered, launched. But, problem, is it local, universal, or both? Back in the 20s and 30s, the Texas Baptist, especially B.H. Carroll, not to be confused with his lesser brother, J.M., who wrote Trail of Blood, espoused the idea that presently there is no such thing as a universal church. Schofield, in his notes, says there is, and they just used to have a fit at that. They say, and are correct, an overwhelmingly high percentage of New Testament usage of the word church is a clear reference to a local church. And then they logically extrapolate. You cannot have an unassembled assembly. Can't be universal because it's not assembled. You can't have an unassembled assembly. The counter argument to that is we are assembled in Christ in the heavenlies. And therefore you can have, it can be a reference to a universal church. Now where that is not the case, that is it's almost always local, the writer is either speaking, say the B.H. Carolites, prospectively or institutionally. Example, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's a case where it's both future and institutional. And they believe the church started with the selection of the disciples, who had A, a leader or pastor or shepherd, B, a board, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, a treasurer or bag carrier, and members, the other eight. They also believe, some of them, that there is an unbroken line of Baptist churches stretching back to Jesus Christ. How many of you have heard that position? All right, some of you have, quite a few of you. You're just slowing the trigger over here. An unbroken line of Baptist churches back to Jesus. I was once teaching the student body at Baptist Bible College in the field house. And I made the statement, you may believe that. You can believe anything you want. This is America. But using the accepted methods of historical documentation, you cannot prove an unbroken line. And if the position is taken, it must be taken by faith. You can have faith that you can connect the churches all the way back. And the churches are somehow organically tied to each other. Dr. Bill Dowell Sr., then the president of the school, approached after the session, and he was a little bit peeved at me. He says, what are you trying to do, create an incident? You know our fellowship doesn't believe that. And I said, but that's my conclusion. He said, well, it's a dangerous conclusion. And then he said, listen, son, all I need to know is if you shake a chain on one end and it rattles on the other, it's connected in the middle. Okay, I thought about that for a second. There was a guy standing listening to this, another professor by the name of Terry, who was one of the smartest men that I have ever met. And he knew more church history than I ever thought about. When I was playing golf, he was studying church history as a hobby. And we used to get together and I would just be nodding my head. But he looked at me and looked at Dr. Dowell and just shook his head. 
And he said, you're right, they can't prove that. When faith with such unassailable logic, it's connected in the middle because it rattles. What is a guy to say? Now those that hold to this position would include Dr. Dowell, G.B. Vick, my own grandfather, and I've debated it with him, John W. Rawlings, Wendell Zimmerman, Noel Smith, the first editor of the Baptist Bible Tribune. Now where are they today? I don't mean the men. They're in heaven. They know better now. <laughs> but where is the fellowship? I have no idea. I assume, like on everything else, they have substantively moved the goalpost. I do know that back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, a faculty member faced a literal firing squad if he taught the present existence of a universal church. And if he did that, you would soon hear a thundering sound that could be heard coming up the highway, the charging of hoofbeats, and it would be the Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas fellowships charging Springfield on a good mission to clean up Dodge and hang the offending professor from the nearest oak tree. These folks will file under traditionalists, even though they're a little bit different. They're still traditionalists because they believe something happened in Acts chapter 2, that there was an empowerment or something that got the thing legitimate in Acts chapter 2. So we'll file them along with Ryrie, Valvord, Criswell, uh, Pentecost, Geisler in that camp. I'm going to assume that, and maybe wrongly assume, that most here would be entrenched in this camp as well. Somehow, some way connected to Acts chapter 2. The second group, the ultras, called mid-Acts by some. Sometimes called the grace philosophy. And their position is the church, the moniker of the church, drop it. Drop it as far as the church age is concerned. If it does not occur after the date or scripturally pinpointed place of their designation, the thing has to go. At least it is no longer binding on born-again folks. Now these people would beg you just to tag them with dispensationalist. They hate the term ultra, just like the hypers hate the term hyper, just like the hyper-Calvinists go into a spasm if you call them hyper-Calvinists. They feel that and they're offended and hurt and feel misunderstood. They feel the Acts 2 folks are their brothers and it's irrational to fear interaction or refuse to share pulpits over a minor difference that doesn't impact soteriology. They often appear somewhat intimidated by the sheer numbers of their under-enlightened peers. Are they in our camp? W.A. Criswell says they should not be considered dispensationalists at all. Their three leading lights are Stam, Cornelius Stam, O'Hare and Sadler. J.C. O'Hare may have been the most instrumental person for the initial popularity of the view. And in the 20s, this rather theologically challenged Chicago radio personality concluded the, sig 
the, the sign gifts were not for this age. Well, so far, so good. But then he jumped the shark. He started finding other things to pitch into the dustbin of history as well. And he wound up bedfellows with the Bullingerites. In the 30s, theological types beleaguered him. Harry Ironside, a popular devotional commentator with works on nearly every New Testament book, which graced the libraries of practically every American pastor. I know that when my grandfather died, uh, some of us in the family divided up his library, and I got about six or seven commentaries by Harry Ironside. And I've used them. They're rather devotional, but I've used them. His two main works that would impact this subject were Wrongly Dividing the Brethren and Rightly Dividing the Word. Then more doctrinal problems cropped up. O'Hare and his adherents were having a problem. It was pointed out that Paul baptized converts after he knew of the grace of God. So the backfield had to shift. These folks are famous for readjustments. So O'Hare, Stam, and Baker trekked over to Acts chapter 9, abandoned the Acts 28 position. Particularly Romans 16, 7 killed the dry cleaning system. Ruckman says their theme song was, How Dry I Am, How Dry I Am. You've heard of water dogs? These were waterless dogs. They were thirsty. Now why? Andronicus and Junio were in Christ, Romans 6, 3, before Paul, who are of note among the apostles, who were in Christ before me. Ooh, what are you going to do with that? Archbishop Usher says that Paul was converted in 35 A.D. Christ, arguably, was killed in 30 A.D. So you have about a three or four year window for their baptism in the Holy Spirit, which put them in Christ. Everybody agreed that that's what was meant there. The problem was that was before Acts 9, where these fellows had landed. So they had a problem. Well, they huddled. The Mitters even huddled. And they said, I guess that means one can be in Christ without being in Christ's body. Well, that solved the problem neatly, didn't it? Problem is, no one had taken that position before. The body must have existed in the mind of God, they said, before it became a reality when later revealed to the Apostle Paul. You mean it existed before it was revealed? Well, they kind of flipped their position there. Why not just go all the way back to Acts 2 when it was both in the mind of God and on the reality agenda? Can't do that, they said. We're not giving up our position. We'll maintain the dichotomy. In Christ, in Christ's body, two different things. And we'll fight it out on that front. When did the body begin? Well, if you say Acts 2, they contended, then you've got to let in the other things that happened in Acts 2 as well. I mean, you've got to say, okay, let tongues in. 
No, you don't have to let tongues in. Because the Bible clearly says that where there be tongues, they shall what? They shall cease. So you don't have to let them in. Where in the Bible does it say where there be the Lord's Supper, it shall cease? Where in the Bible does it say where there be baptism, it shall cease? Well, it doesn't. And what they've actually done is make an argument for the traditionalist view. It's impossible to prove a negative. So these folks are tough to deal with. But we keep trying, hoping that they'll see the light. Now, if you are or become a pastor, how crucial is the issue? Would you allow a mid-Acts tribulationist to occupy your pulpit? Or cooperate with them in an evangelistic effort? Would you blackball a Harry Ironside, for instance, who didn't practice baptism because he was a mid-axer, but he was orthodox in every other way? What would you do? Now, in the great fundamental Baptist congresses of the 60s, and one of them met in my home church, the Canadian Baptists were invited in to participate and even to be on the agenda and to speak. A man named H.C. Slade, Jarvis Street in Toronto. The Canadian Baptists were amillennialists, and yet they were allowed in. Now, is an amillennialist better than a mid-acts dispensationalist? Just asking. We tend to want to label these boys as enemies and see no good thing in them. And yet the big time revivalists that may have saved Orthodox Christianity in the early 20th century had revivals where Methodists, Presbyterians, Bible churches, etc. were invited to come in, were welcome. And some of those folks actually believed you could lose your salvation. I was sitting in chapel at Bob Jones University about my second year there. And old Dr. Bob Sr. got up to speak. You never knew what was going to happen when old Dr. Bob got up. Because he was getting a little bit senile. They called it hardening of the arteries back then. And he would give an illustration. And then he would pause for a second. And say, you know, I, I may have given this illustration sometime before in the school's history. You did two minutes ago. And he would repeat the same illustration word for word. They finally had to sit him down. But they hadn't dealt with it quite yet, so he's up talking, and he's saying some things that probably they were a little bit uncomfortable with. And he says, you know, it is unlikely that you would lose your salvation once you have it. But I'm not going to say it's impossible. If you come to the point that you don't want it anymore, I don't think God's going to make you keep it. I think you can lose your salvation. I nearly fell out of my chapel seat. I was once eating with Dr. Vick and Bob Jones Jr. And Bob Jones Jr. was exacerbated with someone that was fighting him. And he said, you know, I think they've lost their salvation if they ever had it. Dr. Vick just looked up and said, Bob, you're ignoring the new birth. You can't be unborn. I looked at Dr. Bob and thought, okay, what are you going to say to that? He didn't say anything. 
He just went on with the conversation. But I ask you, which position is worse? Of a truth, consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds. And then thirdly, the hyper-dispensationalists or Acts 28ers. What about them? The key figure was an Anglican clergyman, one Ethelbert W. Bullinger. If my name was Ethelbert, I would have gone by E.W. too, which he did. <laughs> he wrote the Companion Bible and is considered the father of Acts 28 dispensationalism. He was born December the 15th, 1837 in Canterbury, England, and was touted as a first-rate scholar whose expertise was in biblical languages. And interestingly to me, he was a direct descendant of Hohann Heinrich Bullinger, who succeeded Ulrich Zwingli after the reformer was killed on the battlefield in a dust-up between a Reformation canton and a Catholic canton. E.W. was educated at King's College in London, and he was so educated that he was considered the last word on things theological in that part of the world for a generation. Just because you have a heritage and a string of letters after your name, it doesn't make you right automatically. E.W. taught, for instance, the extinction of the soul between death and resurrection. He also taught the universal salvation of all living beings, including Satan, who would eventually be saved. He died in 1913 after having led many astray. Now these men believe the body of Christ as presently constituted has nothing to do with anything Peter ever said or did or was exposed to. The Pauline ministry included the early epistles, and he didn't have anything to do with them either. You can't get good church doctrine out of the Pauline epistles, most of them. Truth for our era is reserved for the prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, which, quote, set forth the fullness of the revelation of the mystery of the church age, not until the prison epistles. The doctrine of substitutional atonement is exclusively Paul's, and obviously Peter was not exposed to it, according to one pundit. But as I read 2 Peter 3, verses 13 through 18, I won't take time to do it, those things, verse 14, and things, verse 17, the mysteries he was exposed to. He didn't understand them very well. He had a hard time getting over his Jewishness. Or maybe Paul was a little too cerebral for him, but he was exposed. Paul died in 68, and 2 Peter was written in 68. So he knew about him. He was exposed to the gamut of Paul's authored outpouring. Now about uh, 1 o'clock last night, Brett came to my room just to check to see that I wasn't going to teach any heresy today. <laughs> and I couldn't get rid of him. I mean, some of you have had that experience talking to him. And he had some suggestions, and one of which was, Dad, you used to go faster. 
You used to Gatling gun it. Now give it the old Gatling gun approach tomorrow. I said, Brett, this isn't a sermon. The Gatling gun approach doesn't fit with this technical kind of material. But I'm going to Gatling gun it here. (laughs) What do they believe, this crowd? Number one, only the prison epistles are for this age or economy. Number two, the church in Acts is a kingdom assembly, not to be confused with the body of Christ. Three, the body of Christ and being in Christ are to be considered as separate phenomenon. Four, there is a difference in Paul's early theology and his later enlightenment. If that's true, then where did it happen? And why is Luke silent about it since he was recording the history of the thing? Peter, Acts 10 reported a radical change in his beliefs and approach, which altered everything for the church. They are now even as we are. It's different. It's different. Now, if that happened to Paul, why didn't he follow the example of Peter and trumpet it to the churches? He didn't do it. Paul's special Holy Spirit-led tutorial about the mystery body was not known to those exposed to only the Old Testament scriptures. They were not revealed until his imprisonment in Rome. The bride is Jewish, has nothing to do with the body. So all this stuff about the bride of Christ, you can safely file it in 13 as far as practicality is concerned. Acts 2.47, added to the church. And Acts 5.14, added to the Lord, are to be understood as the addition of Jews and Jewish proselytes to a kingdom church that ultimately failed due to Jewish repudiation. And if you don't create this phantom church, even the Acts chapter 9 scenario falls on its face and the Acts 28 scenario becomes a joke. Eight, the grace of God can't be in evidence until Acts 9 or 13 or 28. Henceforth, I will go to the Gentiles. Under what shell are we to determine where the church started? Water baptism by Acts 19 had vanished, A.D. 56. I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius. And the Bullingerites say, see, he was glad because the practice was Jewish and it's now over. Well, then why did he do it on these two occasions and a few others that he'd forgotten their names? Why did he do it at all? If it had passed. And why did you, Bullingerites, stop reading? Verse 15, lest any should say that I had baptized in mine own name. The issue wasn't the viability of the ordinance, but the forestalling of factionalism in the church, verse 17. Verse 17 explains, for Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. That is, I'm primary and an primarily an evangelist, a church planter, not a pastor. So I wouldn't baptize very many people. Obviously, the whole Corinthian church was baptized by someone if they're arguing about it. So baptism was practiced. By verse 30, the church is there. Baptism is practiced. They are in Christ. And the Acts 28ers must have slipped a cog somewhere along the line. Tenth, The one baptism of Ephesians 4 cancels water baptism. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Answer, 
The spirit baptism is the one saving baptism. That's how that's to be interpreted. The water baptism is a physical testimony or symbol or figure that the spirit baptism took place. If baptism stopped in chapters 18 or 19, someone forgot to inform the infant church because the infant church practiced baptism, finally got messed up about uh, 300 and something as to the mode, but they were practicing baptism all the way through. In front of Gordon's Calvary, the tomb. If you've ever been there, you'll see that there's an indentation in the ground. And our guide informed us that that was a first or second century baptistry. That folks were baptizing in the first and second century right there outside of what they thought was the tomb of Jesus. Eleven, the great commission is for Jews to go to Jews. Then why is the gospel mentioned? And later defined. Well, why does it tell you to go to all the world and not just the Jews? And why does it say to every creature? Why didn't it say every Jewish creature? And why all the way to the end if Christ knew that the Jews wouldn't succeed and would in fact disappear as a nation after 70 A.D.? Twelve, it is unscriptural to practice repentance and confession which distorts the grace of God. Ken Lawson, quote, a Christian should not feel guilt about his sins after salvation. So don't worry about confessing them. In sum, if you want to imbibe this poison, then you're forced to give up much prophecy, the motivation to live a pure life, passion concerning missions, the idea of progressive sanctification, the Gospels as applicable to your era, even John 3.16, the golden verse of the Bible, it's in the wrong dispensation. Most of Acts, except as an historical curiosity, Paul's writings except for the prison epistles, and of course the more Hebrew of the writings, James, Hebrews, 1 and 2 Peter, they are not doctrinally applicable, so don't worry about them. Bullinger based some of his arguments upon, and I'm quoting here, Bullinger based some of his arguments upon dichotomies of words that did not refer to compatible realities. Don't you just love scholar speak? What did I just say? Translation. He cut up and manipulated verbiage to make it appear they were addressing an issue when they actually were not addressing the issue at all, end quote. And the theological shell game goes on and on and on. If one day you're out in the pastorate and you have a young man walk into your church and he's clean cut and he looks like, my goodness, I wish he would join the church. And he does. Hallelujah. Glory to God. And after a period of adjustment and fellowship and trust gaining, he expresses a desire to start a Bible study or take a Sunday school class. 
I'm warning you, vet him very thoroughly or you may wind up inviting a poisonous hyperspider into the crib of neophytes. Roman numeral four in your outline. Now, I'm engaging in this because Dr. Shelby insisted I do it, or at least pushed it pretty hard. He said, you know, he didn't really say it, but what he was saying was, you're old enough now, you old codger, <laughs> that you have some connection with some of these early folks that were dispensationalists. Tell about your experiences with them. Well, it sounds like I'm name dropping if I do. I hate that. But he wanted me to do it, so I'll do it. But I want you to know, under protest, <laughs> I will do it. And I tried to pick those that were pivotal to what we were talking about in the conference. All right, some birds in the formation that I have collided with or known or something, flown with. The first one is Peter Sturgis Ruckman. I've known Dr. Ruckman since 1958. That's 58 years. I don't even like to think about that. He came to Chautauqua Youth Camp. And I got to know him there. He was intrigued by the fact that I was attending or thinking about attending at that time Bob Jones University, and he was a graduate, got his Ph.D. there. And at the camp through the years, we played blood ball. You get into a pool, they throw a ball out there, and then you try to kill each other. Uh, Dr. Ruckman was a drill in instructor in World War II. And if you knew him personally, he loved combat. He knew later on that I was into judo, along with Larry, and he would always come up and say, what do you do if someone holds you like this? Or what would you, how do you get out of this? And, and we would mock judo fight, believe it or not. I played hockey with him. He started playing hockey, he says, because Larry and I were into it. And we would, uh, about once a year, he'd hold a meeting in the area. And we played every Friday night, and we'd get him out and play hockey with him. He thought he was pretty good. He was a goalie. He even went to a goalie camp. He was terrible. <laughs> but we became friends. I've spoken at three Bad Attitude Baptist blowouts. That's his version of a Bible conference down in Pensacola. And at one of the youth camps, he taught dispensationalism and hyper-dispensationalism in a special session in the afternoon. And it was at that session that for me he provided a framework which I've continued to flesh out somewhat over the years. As I said, he's fighting for his life. He's in hospice. He was down to 60 or 70 pounds, the last I'd heard. We owe him a lot. I know he's a strange bird in a lot of ways, but we owe him a lot. Then there's J. Frank Norris, G.B. Vick, Louis Ensminger, the Old World Fellowship and the Baptist Bible Fellowship. Is there anyone here besides me that has ever met J. Frank Norris? Anybody still alive? 
how am I existing? I don't understand this. <laughs> I'm the only one. J. Frank Norris, alias the preacher, alias the Texas tornado, by many considered the greatest pulpiteer of the first half of the 20th century, imbibed Carolism early on, and belief in the local church, belief that there was no universal church. And this view was taught by Ensminger at the Bible Baptist Seminary, Norris's school. And when the split came in 1950, there was a cross-pollinization into the Baptist Bible Fellowship, and then the generations graduating from what became the world's largest Bible college continued the spread of dispensationalism. Billy Graham. Now, when did I ever bump into Billy Graham? I met Billy Graham in Greenville when he held a crusade there, much to the consternation of the university, because they had fallen out big time. I'm in college and I, I read about this tent that they're erecting that will hold 15,000 or something. And so I drove over there one day and there I recognized some of the figures, so I thought, why not? I may never get this shot again. I'll, I'll talk to him, see if I can meet him. And I did. And I met Grady Wilson, who was on the staff. And I met Cliff Barrows. They were both graduates of Bob Jones University as well, years before that. I said, is there any possibility that Cliff Barrows, I could meet Dr. Graham? And he said, uh, well, I don't know. I said, tell him I'm Dr. Vic's grandson. I, I, I use that every once in a while when I really need it. <laughs> so we, he went inside the tent, told him that Dr. Vic's grandson wanted to see him. He knew my grandfather. He had had breakfast with him, and my grandfather had somewhat cooperated in the Detroit crusade. Not officially, but he took 3,000 people to it. And Graham announced at that time it was the largest single contingent they'd ever had at a crusade. So out he came. I talked to him for about four or five minutes. And it is Graham's early preaching, often he alluded to eschatology, and only eschatology that could be true if you were a dispensationalist. So he helped spread the good word, maybe even inadvertently. Another one of these fellows is W.A. Criswell. W.A. Criswell was called the strongest influence for Acts II dispensationalism in the Southern Baptist Convention. He was a pastor of the First Baptist of Dallas, which claimed to be the largest church in the world, along with Temple Baptist, claiming to be the largest church in the world, along with Akron Baptist, claiming to be the largest church in the world. And that thing was debated endlessly, which one was really larger. It was the most unusual Sunday evening service that I've ever been in. Dr. Criswell, at the end of the service, about 40 people came forward, and he talked to each one. This thing lasted about an hour after the service. Give me your history, and what are your plans, and where do you live, and where do you work, and so forth. He came to a couple of young guys that were there. They were joining the church that didn't have a job, and he just stopped the whole thing and said, all right, this boy needs a job. Somebody offer him a job out there. There were about 4,000 people there on a Sunday night, and he had jobs for them before they left the building. So I approached him after. 
told him who I was. He actually seemed excited. And we talked for about 20 or 25 minutes about Norris and other things because they pastored just a little ways from each other. I never met a warmer, friendlier man than Dr. Chriswell. Before we left, he'd known me 25 minutes. He didn't know whether I could spit over my chin or not. And he invited me to preach at First Baptist Church. What an opportunity. Largest church in the world, maybe. I went back to Springfield and called and got a date set up. And the president of Baptist Bible College, A.V. Henderson, heard about it, called me into his office, and said, you can go, but if you go, you're fired. If you preach at that church, you're fired. I thought, you turkey. <laughs> if you were invited, you'd go. But I didn't go. I, I liked the paycheck, so I wasn't able to go. Who else? Bob Jones University. Bob Jones Jr. and Ed Panosian. Bob Jones Jr. is called the man who carpeted the sawdust trail. He and Dr. Vic were very close, almost like brothers. Dr. Bob Jr. was probably the most eloquent man, the smoothest speaker that I've ever run into. But he wasn't a scholar. He sounded like one. He sounded like he knew everything. But he wasn't really a scholar. He had 30 sermons that he had memorized. I mean, we talked about it. 30 sermons. I mean, he'd be out of soap as a pastor in two months. But boy, they were smooth sermons. I guess so after giving them 200 times each. He wasn't a theologian, but he was a loose dispensationalist. He never pushed it, however, at the university. In all the chapel sessions and all, never heard it mentioned. Ed Panosian, he was a history teacher. One of the three greatest teachers to which I've been exposed. The others are, believe this or not, a professor named Tweedy. Sounded like a cartoon. And he was the head of the psychology department at Fuller Theological Seminary. And in graduate school, he taught one of the courses that I was exposed to, and he was as brilliant as they come. And the third one would be Stuart McBurney. And McBurney wrote songs like The Search for the True Tomb of Jesus and The Search for the Twelve Apostles and so forth. You, you need to get them. They're good. But Ed Panosian said when he was in my church, I invited him a few years ago, it doesn't make any real difference where you think the church started. It doesn't make any real difference. I differ with the good doctor, even though I'm not worthy to carry his textbook. The school's position is, where good men differ, Bob Jones University does not take a stand where good men differ. Boy, that's open to interpretation. Who's a good man? Who's a good man? And there might be a good man in many ways, but he's a heretic in one area. You better make a difference. You better expose it if it's an error. J. Dwight Pentecost wrote Things to Come. We had a professor at school that went to uh, Dallas Theological Seminary 
And he became friends with Pentecost. Pentecost showed up in Springfield. He said, hey, do you want to go out and eat with Dwight Pentecost? The authority on the end times? I said, sure. So we went out to eat. But I was so stupid, I didn't ask him anything about eschatology. And here I'm with the authority of the world, practically, and I never brought it up. I kicked myself to this day. But he is a strong dispensationalist, and I did bump into him. John MacArthur, hyper-Calvinist. I was at a session one night in his church where he was just taking questions and answering them, didn't preach at all for an hour. And one of them was on hyper-Calvinism. Another was on dispensationalism. And he described himself as a weak dispensationalist. I met him three times. He taught a session in the graduate school that I attended. He was described in some of the literature that I've been reading lately as a leaky dispensationalist. What in the world is a leaky dispensationalist? I don't know, but I do know that he accepted the term. You would say he copped to it today, I guess. In fact, he seemed proud of it. His new running buddy, I've learned lately, is a man, a preacher, a teacher by the name of Sproul. John W. Rawlings, pastor of the Landmark Baptist Church in Cincinnati, known in the fellowship as Dr. John. Everybody knew who you were talking about. He referred to himself often in the third person and referred to himself as the Big Rev. The Big Rev. Listen, son. Listen to the Big Rev. He had advice on everything. Now, I loved him. I've known him since I was born. He and Dr. Vick, again, were just like brothers. But he never saw a sunrise for which he couldn't take credit. In a certain incident that I'll move to the close with here, a certain incident took place at a Ohio Baptist Bible Fellowship state meeting. When a missionary got up, the missionaries were introduced and they could say where their field was and a little word of wisdom. And this missionary got up and said, I'm on such and such a field and I appeal for your support unless you're a Ruckmanite. And if you believe in this stuff of multiple salvations and you're saved one way in the Old Testament, another way in the New Testament, I don't want your money. Boy, that was a strange presentation. A few minutes later, the meeting closed and we were outside lining up for food. And Dr. John walked up to me and poked me and said, uh, you didn't like that, did you? And I said, no, I didn't like that. And then he said, son, listen to the big rev. There's only one way of salvation in the Bible. Those folks in the Old Testament were looking forward to the cross. And then we today are looking back at the cross. And Dr. John could get kind of loud. And so there were probably 60 preachers in line. And I looked up in a little circle had formed around us. About 30 of them had gotten out of line and they were trying to listen to the conversation. I thought I was E.F. Hutton when I started to talk. 
And I saw it as somewhat of a challenge. And I had known him long enough, I could kind of, well, nobody else in the fellowship probably would have even taken him on. They just said, yeah, Dr. John, yes, Dr. John. But I didn't have any sense. <laughs> and so I said, Dr. John, I'd like to pose a few questions then on this issue. He said, all right, what do you got? This is the 10 you've got in your outline. I may do 20 if I get time here. Now, in the Old Testament, did you get whatever you got by asking for it, or did you have to do something? He just looked at me. In the Old Testament, did the Holy Spirit move into you or come on you for some exploit? Did the law make you safe, or did the law make you actually saved? And if it was saved, then why wasn't it eternal? In the Old Testament, were you born again? And if all those folks in the Old Testament were born again, why didn't Nicodemus know anything about it? In the Old Testament, was it free? Or did it cost you something like a prize animal out of your flock? In the Old Testament, were you redeemed? And if so, with what? The blood of Christ wasn't yet shed. In the Old Testament, those Old Testament boys, if they knew about it and were looking forward to the cross, why was the word used or the words used marvel not in John 3, 7? Number eight in my list. Were they justified and forever, or were they readjusted annually? Compare John 3.16 and Psalm 51.7. Did the Old Testament saints go to the third heaven, or to a holding tank called paradise, or Abraham's bosom? Ten, obviously the apostles had no idea what was going to happen Matthew 16, 21 and 22. For when it was broached, I'm going down to be crucified. What did Peter say? Oh, no, you're not, Lord. We're not going to let you do that. And you're telling me he was looking forward to it? Zacharias had to be spirit-filled to prophesy about it in Luke chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 and Luke chapter 1, verses 76 and 77. If these things are the same, nothing had to be divided. Rightly divide the word of truth? Well, you didn't have to divide anything, man. It was the same all the way through. Old Testament believers, did they get added to the body of Christ? Romans 12. When the body of Christ Hadn't been crucified yet? In the New Testament, they're called the sons of God once they're converted. John 1, 12. In the Old Testament, the sons of God are angels. Job 38. In the New Testament, those that are believers are in the bride of Christ. 
In the Old Testament, they're friends of the groom, Luke 16, 16 and John 3, 29. If it's the same, why is God in the flesh a mystery until revealed in Galatians chapter 3, verse 22 and 23? What is a mystery? That's something that wasn't known in the Old Testament. So the Old Testament boys didn't know about the Incarnation. Historical argument. How could the Old Testament saints have understood the cross imagery when it wasn't invented yet by the Persians or Romans. If you have your Bibles, just very quickly here, turn to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. The Old Testament couldn't have saved anybody. Verse 6, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. God didn't even like the system. Didn't like the slaughtering of millions of animals. And then one more. Number 20 in my outline. You've only got 10. I don't know what you're doing for space. <laughs> Turn to Luke chapter 4. This is uh, after the temptation to Christ, so it's more or less launching his public ministry. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee, and there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. This is the word, reading the word. Wild. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he hath appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, period. Now this is a first Advent practice, and it stops in other words, it's divided. If you want to say it's cut straight, it's cut straight right down, right here. There's a division. Now turn to Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath appointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek, he has sent me to bind up the broken hearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Same passage, basically. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now that's where it was cut off when the Lord was quoting it in the New Testament. And the day of vengeance. Not the same dispensation. And the day of vengeance 
of our God to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion. Why are they mourning? Because of what has happened to them in the lead up to the second advent. To give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, and so forth. It's a second advent. Listen to Peter Ruckman. His note in the Ruckman Reference Bible. Verses 1 and 2 are the textbook case for rightly dividing the word of truth. 2 Timothy 2.15 When Christ reads the verses in Luke 4, he ends with verse 2 at the comma because everything up to that point deals with his first advent. The rest of the verse deals with the second advent. In other words, the comma represents 2,000 years of history. I'll bet not too many of these Acts 28ers picked that one up. Righteousness. Everlasting covenant. You're named priests if you go on reading. Praise to spring forth before all nations. Now what do I get out of the comparison of these two? Well, several things. But for our conference purposes, I get one main thing. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, our Lord and Savior, the Word, who wrote the Word, who quoted the Word, was a dispensationalist. <laughs> 